Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. The Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEN. Jordan Canellas with you here on the Sporting Capital on a Tuesday night. 1-300-736-736 if you'd like to give us a call. On the Harcourts open line, your move, your Harcourts. You can send us a text. Thanks to Temper, a mattress like no other. 0433-981116. The Sporting Capital with a bit of a mishmash tonight. We'll go here and there and everywhere chatting about sport. We'll keep the footy going for a little bit because there's a few things I want to talk about. Com game starts in uh, two days. The 28th is when it begins, and we'll have coverage for you here on SEM. We brought you the Olympics last year, so why not bring you the Com games uh, coming to you uh, coming to you from Birmingham uh, in a couple of days from now? There'll be some uh, great Aussie moments, hopefully, on the way in the Commonwealth Games. Um, so we'll uh, we might just chat a bit about uh, which Aussies to look out for and uh, and what to get excited about. Uh, there was a text that came in earlier, though. Well, there was actually a couple, so there was a few things I need to address. One that came in about Braden Maynard and uh, and his uh, shoulder injury. Mitch Cleary has just tweeted that Braden Maynard has escaped serious damage to his shoulder injury but is in significant doubt to face Port uh, uh, off the six-day break this weekend. He won't take part in contact training at the Pies' main session tomorrow. So that was Mitch Cleary on Twitter about... Uh, about just shy of 10 minutes ago. So that's the latest update from Collingwood is no serious damage for Braden Maynard. So hopefully that means no structural damage in the shoulder. Should be fine to come back uh, soon enough, but just not this week. Uh, so off the short turnaround for the Pies, he won't be playing this weekend, it looks like. Uh, but no serious damage for uh, for Braden Maynard for Collingwood, which is good news for Pies fans. Uh, one that came in earlier was from Matt. Can Josh Dacos get some love? The number one ranked wingman in the competition. Could we possibly see Nick and Josh both in the All-Australian team, says Matt. I don't know if we'll see Nick in there. And while his first season has been really good, and there wouldn't be any reason to not see him in the squad of 40 players, uh, I don't know if he'll get the final nod to be in the um, in the All-Australian team. It would be amazing if he is picked, though. So a rookie player, first seat, or, you know, not... Not, li- not literally a rookie player, not on the rookie list, but uh, a rookie in the sense that it's his first season in the league. Um, getting an All-Australian berth, wouldn't be too many players who have done that. Not as not as a, an 18, 19-year-old first-year player. There might have been 
it might have been a um a a mature age player. I don't know. Did Tim Kelly get All Australian in his first season? He would have been, well, he was mature age. Uh, but for a young player, for a first-year player, right out of the uh, the TAC Cup slash NAB League, out of the draft, getting into the uh, into the All Australian team, not sure if that's been done before. Maybe Chris Judd. Don't know if he got All Australian in his first season, but but Josh Dacos, though, I won't say definitely in the twenty-two, but I'd say he's a lock for the forty. He's been really good. He's been very very good this season. There've been quite a few Collingwood players actually, but he would be one of the. The uh, pardon me, one of the front-running wingmen uh, in the competition to uh, to get a look in for a spot in the All Australian team. Now, Kane Corns and uh, and Hutchie had a couple of things to say about All Australian selections on Footy Classified last night. This is uh, Kane Corns and Hutchie talking about. Firstly, Mark Blitzarves. Position, what position? Any position. He's the only All-Australian that can play all 18 positions. Yeah. He's the most versatile footballer the game has ever produced. No, he's a, he's, he's a, a, a shut-down midfielder and a ruckman and a centre-half back when he needs to be. You're just jumping on the back of all the other hype. Has he had that big a year? He's, 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 he's a real important team. player in the structure of Geelong, but he has he had an All-Australian season? Should Mark Blitzarves be in the All-Australian team? Are we just... Are we being almost seduced by Mark Blitzarv's uh, supreme versatility that we're seeing him uh, be picked in all these uh, fantasy All-Australian teams, phantom All-Australian teams at this stage in the season? Has he actually been effective enough for Geelong to get an All-Australian berth? My answer to, to that is yes, I think he has. I think he's been great for Geelong. Um, he His versatility has allowed him, it's, it's enabled him to be a key contributor for the Cats and most weeks he is... Uh, I guess from a numerical perspective, is putting out a high output. But even just from an impact perspective, so regardless of whether he gets a stat for what he does or not, uh, his impact for the Cats has really helped them through midfield and and through uh, his flexibility around the ground. So I think he would be a a look. I don't want to lock anyone in just now for the All-Australian team. I know we're only four weeks from the season. There's probably half a dozen players who you could lock into the team uh, to the All-Australian side. But but for Mark Blitzarves, I think he is, is... he is odds on to be in the All-Australian team for his flexibility. There was actually a text that came in yesterday, which I found curious. We were talking about uh, with Matt Randell, um, who or which Ruckman should get into the team. And someone sent in uh, a, almost a list, like a, a, yeah, a list of Ruckman. There was four names on there. Gorn, uh, Gorn Darcy. Who was the other one? Might have been Draper. Gorn Darcy, Draper and Blitzarves. And they said, Gorn Darcy or Draper gets on the field as the first Ruckman and then pick Mark Blitzarves as the second Ruckman on the bench, no matter what happens. So it's funny that we're almost putting three, or this text anyway, this was just one text message, putting three other Ruckman ahead of Mark Blitzarves. So in, in, in effect, was having Mark Blitzarves as the fourth best Ruckman, but still picking him in the team anyway. Uh, so you could have picked, raffled any of the first three Ruckman on the field and then Blitzarves on the bench. And I guess that's, Kind of doesn't make sense that you go, oh, the number one and the number four Ruckman or the number two and the number four Ruckman get into the team if you are seeding your Ruckman that way. But it's just because of Mark Blitzarves, um, his ability and his uh, his utility, his Swiss Army knife abilities uh, to do to do it all, to do anything around the grounds. Is, that's, we're putting that uh, as, a, um, as a heavy weight in Blitzarves' favour to get picked in the All-Australian team. The other one they had, a little uh, discussion, Kane Corns, was about... Uh, Adam Saad being picked on the halfback flank in the All-Australian team. 
He's, I think he's the best halfback in the game right now. His game yesterday. So he's in your all If you didn't watch it, go and watch it. He defends as hard as anyone, and then he does this. He's using the ball better than any halfback in the game, but he's also defending. His intercept work is elite. He just ripped this game apart yesterday. Like that kick there. I mean, that, not many players in the game can do that. So I think he right now is currently the best halfback in the game, and, th- and that's what he's doing. Is Adam Saad the best halfback flanker in the game? Do you agree with Kane Corn? Some people might say the man on the other flank in the same team is maybe a better chance to being in the All-Australian team. Sam Doherty, is he ahead of Adam Saad? I like Adam Saad. He's one of my favourite players in the league to watch. But has, has he been the best halfback flanker in the league? I, from pretty much the start of the season, and then not that I was predicting him to make the All-Australian team, but I've been enjoying his work from the start of the season to now is Jack Sinclair from St Kilda. I think Sinclair has been probably the most consistent halfback flanker across the season. The most, uh, one of the most impactful halfback flankers as well. So not just playing consistently at a at an average level, but consistently at a good level. I think he I think he would be the one for me that I would put in first as a halfback flanker into the All-Australian team. And then the other one is Daniel Rioli. I think his, his season has been phenomenal. Could you have all three of them in the team? Probably not. So Saad, I'm talking Saad, Sinclair and Rioli. So I'm, I'm just parking Doherty to one side for a second. And the others, because there's, there's a whole bunch. Uh, probably not. I think the selectors would probably just have the four, uh, the uh, the two players on the um, on the flanks and then not pick one on the bench. So who would be your front runners for the All-Australian team on the halfback flank? Is Adam Saad a lock, as, uh, as Kane Corns has said, effectively? He's calling him the best halfback flanker in the game. 0433 98 11 16 to send through your text messages. Already there's been a... Uh, a, um, a a hot and cold differential on the text machine about Mark Blitzarv. So the first one said, yes, he should. The second one says, do your homework. Numerically, he stinks. Do some proper research. Six games, he's had 14 touches or less with barely any metres gained. And then the third one says, uh, Blitzarv is literally a once-in-a-generation player like no other. Uh, wherever he's picked, he's worthy. There you go. It's literally the one in, one extreme to the other. Now, to the middle text, so I did I did state that, yes, numerically he has been decent, not every week, but impacts, the impact on the game is is probably um, is is where Mark Blitzarves really shines, is that he's, he's doing ruck work, so he's not going to always get big numbers, but his ability to be a ruckman and then transform effectively into a, into a fourth midfielder is where his flexibility, that's the flexibility he brings, and that's where his, um, his, his influence is. And his um, his worth really lies. Uh, he is a lock, one hundred percent, says Luke. Uh, on Adam Saad, Saad is better than Doherty by a mile. No comparison. Doherty gets plenty of cheap possessions and turns it over frequently. Saad never turns it over and creates turnovers in favour of Carlton, uh, says Luke. He's a he's a lock, one hundred percent. So there you go. Differing opinions coming through on the text machine zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. Patrick Dangerfield was uh, on SEN earlier today and spoke about uh, the players in the stadiums not being the benefit of a countdown clock like the viewers have on TV. This is Patrick Dangerfield. I just think you know it's pretty pedestrian that we don't exactly have the information that we can see straight away. I don't think it attracts one bit um, from the game itself. And as a supporter, if you don't want to watch it or look at it, don't look at it. But it's something that's pretty valuable for us as players. So talking about countdown clocks in the stadium. So the viewers on TV have a countdown clock. 
the fans in the stadium have a count-up clock, but it's pretty easy for fans to see or to get an idea or get word of the countdown clock, whether you're on an app or listening to the radio call where we frequently give you the clock um, situation, be it count-up or count-down. It's not hard for fans. It's not hard for coaches in the coach's box who have all sorts of clocks in their, in their coach's box or on the bench as well. But the players on the field are probably the only group of people, unless you're in the in the stadium and you choose not to uh, source out a countdown clock, but the players are the only ones who are not privy to a countdown clock. They're being given placards and signs and boards from the people on the bench. It's almost primitive. It's it, Does it look unprofessional? They're the only ones who aren't privy to a countdown clock. They're the, they're the, only, they're the only ones who don't know how much time is left exactly in the game now they're obviously they're told frequently by the runners and by the boards up on this on the sideline but it's not accurate it's a it's a it's a it's a roundabout number by the time a runner gets out into the middle of the ground and tells them how much time is left well that's chewed up another 20 seconds so they don't know exactly the number of uh, of minutes and seconds left in the game you think of every other sport in the world pretty much any other sport you cast your mind to they would know how much time is left in the game in soccer, for example, now every game gets to ninety minutes, so and there's always clock. Now soccer clocks are count up clocks, but it's a it's a hard ninety. You get to the ninety minutes, and then you have however many minutes are put on for added time. So you know that at least the players know that once you get to ninety, it's going to be about three more minutes. They know it's a, it's a pretty you know regimented way that the structure works in soccer. In a sport like the in like basketball. Uh, anywhere around the world in basketball, here in Australia, in the NBL or in the NBA or Europe or wherever, they have a clock right above the backboard. They have, you can see the minutes, you can see the shot clock. It's there in their face. They can see it. Uh, I'd be pretty certain that, you know, some stadiums would have the um, the screens in the middle of the roof, that sort of four-sided cube that hangs down from the ceiling. That would have a clock on it as well for the fans in the stadium to, to see how much time is left in the game. Uh, in American football, they have clocks at either ends behind the end zone, so the team, so the quarterback can see how much time is left uh, on the on the play clock and on the game clock. Um, pretty much any sport in the world would have countdown clocks available to players in the stadiums. Should the AFL bring in countdown clocks in the stadium so that the players can see how much time is left in the game? Now, me personally, subjectively, I like the count up clock. I like not knowing how much time is left in the game. Uh, I was a big fan of the five-minute warning on Channel 10. Um, when I'm calling games, I try to not look at the monitor in the in the com box as much as I can, and I'd rather look at the count-up clock in the stadium just to keep myself in in the um, in in the in the unknown. Um, but for players, they practice game situations like that in training, where they have two-minute drills, one-minute drills, thirty-second drills on what they would do in a in a in a game-dying situation. Um, when they're five points down or two goals down or you know two points down or whatever the case may be for situations around the ground. They can't effectively action those plans if they don't have the exact time readily available to them at, at any point in the game. So should we bring in a count down clock where it counts from 20 down to zero uh, into the stadiums to benefit the players? There's no real reason why we don't. The only Maybe the only reason we don't have the count up clocks in the stadium is for drama it's just for theatrical effect or maybe we don't have the capacity to have countdown clocks in the stadiums maybe we don't have the technology but i think that's a bit of that'd be bogus that you couldn't have a countdown clock of course you could have a countdown clock it's not that hard so 
should we have countdown clocks in the stadiums? Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. No, no, no on the countdown clock. Then you don't have moments like we had on the weekends. Uh, do you forget why they introduced that rule? It's to stop teams wasting time at the end of the game or quarters. Uh, Daniel says, no way on the count- on the countdown clock. It's not knowing. Uh, that adds to the drama. Look at the last two weeks. Um, don't worry about the grounds, boys. Players should wear proper boots. Uh, says another one, says Chris. Um, uh, that's why the AFL is so special. Change nothing, says Steve on the Gold Coast. Uh, Robert says, uh, seriously, just making up issues out of nothing. Get real, says Robert. So, suit yourself, Robert. Uh, 04339811116. Should we have countdown clocks in the stadiums for players uh, or not? I like, I like the drama. I like the drama of a count up clock, but for the players' benefit, there really isn't any reason why, apart from the time wasting, but that's just good game management, isn't it? Teams do it anyway. Whether it's countdown or count up, teams are going to kick backwards and chew up time off the clock if they have the lead. It's going to happen regardless. So should we bring it in or not? Let's take a break. Get your thoughts after this. You're listening to The Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEM. Welcome back to The Sporting Capital on SEM. Jordan Canellis with you. Rob from Doncaster East is with us to have a chat about Halfback flankers in the All-Australian team. Rob, we've got about uh, two minutes to take your call. So happy to get you on. What are your thoughts, Rob? G'day, mate. Um, yeah, I'm just, um, I wanted to talk about, I know Sam Doherty and uh, Adam Sarda are very good. They should be right up there in the side. But I think one that nearly trumps them all is Nick Dacos. I think he's named in that position each week and uh, he hasn't missed a game. I know he's a first-year player, but uh, he hasn't missed a game and he's having an impact every week. I just wanted to see what you thought about that. So you think... I'm not trying to prejudice against Nick Dacos by saying he's a first-year player and, and, you know, therefore would be on the on the back foot for getting an All-Australian team. But his influence on the half-back flank has genuinely been great this season for Collingwood. But would do you think he would be... Do you think the selector... I don't know. I feel like the selectors might have a prejudice against that just because he's a first-year player against experienced players um, uh, who have been performing this well this season. I don't disagree with you, but that, that might be the only thing. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that if that happens, I think that would be the reason. But uh, I guess if you're picking the best side, mm. you probably got to put that aside and think, oh, yes, he is a first-year player, but, I mean, have a look what he does every week. So yeah. I think that would have to be... It just depends which way they go, though. You're, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for the call, Rob. Appreciate it. Rob from Doncaster East. A couple of text messages to finish off the hour. Zero four double or to finish off the half hour because we've got uh, Rob Arnold coming up on the other side of this. Um, I love a Sunday 3.20 game. It's perfect. Uh, can you discuss the chances of the Pies not winning another game for the season after falling across the line against a historically bad North and Crows and a shockingly bad Essendon? Reality is about to hit the Pies hard, says Alan from Aubrey. I kind of spoke about that yesterday, but uh, might touch on it again if I get time. I think the players not knowing the clock uh, actually adds a real unique flavour to the sport. I can imagine the players would feel quite anxious and I think it would probably make the game a little more exciting uh, than knowing how much time you have left. A couple of thoughts there. Rob Arnold from Ride Media is going to chat Tour de France after this. You're listening to The Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEM.
Jordan Canellas with you here on SEN tonight, filling in for Sam Hargraves. Good to be in your company this evening. Uh, one of uh, my favourite sporting events annually every year is the Tour de France. This year was the 109th edition of the Tour. Started in Denmark, obviously finished in France, the Champs-Élysées, the ceremonial stage 21. And this year it was won by Dane Jonas Vingegaard to win his first Tour de France and the first for his team, Team Jumbo Visma. One of Australia's... Uh, most experienced journalists around road cycling and professional cycling is Rob Arnold. He's from Ride Media. He's covered over 20 Tour de France's in France this year in Australia, however, but he's with us here on SEN to chat about the Tour de France, which came to its end on Monday morning. Rob, it's good to have you on the program again. Good to speak to you. How's things? Things are good when I'm talking about cycling. I'm always happy doing it that. Absolutely. Uh, did you enjoy the Tour de France? Just from a general overview, how, how was it for you? Uh, given that I wasn't working at the tour, which I've done many times in the past, I found it totally enjoyable. It was entertainment for me rather than a job. And, um, I, and if there was one race to watch uh, as, a, um, as an other fan, I would say this would have been the one. Everything about it was entertaining. You know, there was very rarely a dull moment, to be frank. It was um, you know, three weeks of full gas action and... Um, a couple of superstars really standing out. But uh, I think everyone who made it to Paris could uh, pat themselves on the back, even uh, Caleb Ewan, who finished dead set last, well over five hours behind the winner. But, um, you know, I think just getting to through that uh, hectic terrain at that pace, which is over 42 kilometres an hour average for, let's say, 3,500 kilometres. I don't know. I can't remember the exact kilometre count, but... It's pretty impressive, um, and, and and also just the way that the riders raced. It was thoroughly entertaining. Jonas Vingegaard, the winner of the Tour de France uh, from Denmark, he rides for Team Jumbo Visma. Uh, he is going to be the, the main story, obviously, as the winner it will be most years. But at an overview uh, from the from the three weeks, what would be the preeminent story that came from this year's tour? Uh, Definitely uh, Jonas Vingegaard's uh, uh, rivalry with uh, the defending champion, two-time champion, Tadej Pogacar. That was a high, absolute standout highlight because I guess um, as someone who's followed cycling for a long time, the, the, the hope is that you see a close contest, a uh, uh, tight uh, battle between a couple of riders where it's not just domination by one. And although the time gaps at the end on the score sheet show that Jonas was in fact the dominant rider. There was only four or five bad kilometres that really taxed uh, Tade and, and knocked him out of contention for the win. Beyond those two, there's another absolute standout, and that's Walt Sonart, uh, who's a teammate of the winner, and the winner of the green jersey and winner of three stages, and an absolute beast of a bike rider who stands over six foot tall, looks probably a bit more like an AFL player than a cyclist in, in typical uh, Grand Tour terms. And uh, the, the way that he went about his business was not just successful and, um, and, uh, and also giving his services to another rider, but he, he did it in with such brute force that it was just like, you know, I was gobsmacked watching a lot of what he did. Jonas Vingegaard, he's 25 years old, finished second at the Tour last year, so we knew he could go through the 21 stages that you have to at a Grand Tour. But um, but really, from from prior to 2021, we hadn't really, well, he hadn't really been a uh, at least to the to the um, to the pro circuit, hadn't been 
too much of a standout name. It was really 2021 when he burst out, and then this year he's had a great year, uh, obviously, which has uh, has culminated in his winner in his win at the uh, at the Tour de France. Why was it able to happen so soon for uh, for Jonas Vingegaard? How has this has this uh, meteoric rise happened so quickly? It's a good question, and I don't have the absolute answer other than to say that he's clearly got uh, an enormous uh, natural gift, and uh, I, I suppose that this, this dominant team, this Jumbo Visma team, uh, which uh, has definitely uh, risen up the ranks in recent years and become the dominant player of, of pro road cycling, uh, have been able to eke out the best of the Dane. Um, up until last year, as you pointed out, he wasn't really in the headlines. He wasn't considered much of a, um, a favourite for any race that he contested. But uh, when when the transformation came, it came rapidly. And he turned himself into not just the most uh, amazing climber I've seen in years, but uh, someone who, who, doesn't, who can go up mountains fast, but also doesn't lose time uh, on the flats or on, in time trials. So it's a complete package now. And exactly what Jumbo Visma did to transform him from, uh, you know, the, uh, the block of granite and, and into the to the incredible specimen that he is, I don't know. But um, they've certainly turned uh, around a, someone with a decent reputation and turned him into something amazing and a standout rider of his generation. As you said, Jumbo Visma, a powerhouse team. They're from the Netherlands uh, in the in the cycling circuit. Uh, they've got big names, obviously, like Vingegaard now. Wout van Aert, who you mentioned before. Australia's own Rowan Dennis, who's a, a time trial specialist. Uh, but it hasn't been all that easy for Team Jumbo-Visma because despite the big names they've had over the last couple of years, this is their first Tour de France victory. They've come close before. So how significant mm-hmm. is this victory for Jumbo-Visma? Oh, it's huge on so many levels. I could go really long with the answer on this, uh, Jordan, so I'd be warned. But um, just to give a quick sort of overview of of the history of this team. It was established in 1996, what was Rabobank at the time, and that was the title sponsor. Uh, Rabobank uh, stayed with the team through thick and thin over um, many years. And then after a 20-year association and, um, and on, on, uh, on the cusp of winning the tour in 2007, it got rocked by a scandal where Michael Rasmussen was uh, another day in riding for the Dutch team. And he was on the edge of, of basically on the cusp of winning the Tour de France in 2007. And then uh, a couple of things came to light uh, that he'd, uh, he'd lied about his whereabouts and uh, he effectively the team booted him out of the Tour after stage uh, 17, despite him wearing the yellow jersey as the race leader. So that was as close as they've come uh, in, in, from the, the beginning of their, their time as a, as a, as a pro cycling team. To winning the Tour de France. Then in 2020, they came second again with Primoz Roglic, but uh, it looked like the Slovenian who came second to Tadej Pogacar in 2020 was going to win until a, what was well, pretty much a, a surprising collapse in the final for the penultimate stage, the final time trial, uh, an uphill battle to La Planche de Belfield. But um, uh, I don't know if I've answered that question, but basically the, 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 the win in the Tour is enormous for them. Um, Primoz Roglic, who I've just referenced, has won the Vuelta España, the Tour of Spain, another one, one of the three three-week races on the calendar. He's won that three times. So um, it's not like they're just sort of uh, cruising around only aiming for the Tour de France. They are a very complete team. They've got a roster packed with talent. 
and they're certainly uh, setting the standard in how to prepare for the biggest races of all. I failed to mention Primoz Roglic when I was reading out a couple of those names before. Does that mean that after this win, does it almost feel like Jonas Vingegaard has, has overtaken uh, Primoz Roglic as the main man at Jumbo Visma? I think that's a fair comment. Uh, not to say that Roglic is washed up or anything, but he is uh, in his uh, mid-30s, 35 from memory. I'm not looking at any stats. And um, uh, Whereas Vingegaard's 25. And, uh, you know... In, <laughs> In, in the traditional sense of a GC rider, it was around late 20s to early 30s where they peak and they reach their prime years. So uh, Vingegaard's got a lot ahead of him. Uh, Roglic is looking in the rearview mirror a little bit. And um, it's only in the last couple of years, uh, pretty much since 2019, when Egan Bernal won the Tour as a 22-year-old, mm. um, that we've seen this young generation of riders come to the fore. So... It's certainly a changing landscape for uh, the Pro Peloton. It, there's new stars coming on the scene. Uh, I've just talked about Egan Bernal, who's the Columbia, first Colombian to win the Tour de France. That was in 2019. Um, and then since that, there's been Tadej Pogacar twice and then uh, Jan Svingegaard. And they're all a lot younger than is the traditional Tour champion. So um, I've gone off on a tangent there. I'm sorry about that, Jordan. I don't know if I've, I've, I've hit you with the right answer <laughs> with regard to the Roglic versus uh, Vingegaard thing. But I would say that they will continue to nurture the, the Roglic train. But when it comes to Tour de France, um, I think that they might prioritise Vingegaard. Mm-hmm. But having said that, um, the only reason that the Roglic train was derailed this year was because of another unfortunate crash, subsequent injuries. And I think also that he might be targeting a fourth win in the Vuelta. So he um, left the, the tour a little bit earlier than anticipated, but he cited injuries and the, the need to protect his health. So um, we'll see what comes of the rest of the season. The Welter's on in September. And then late in September, we hope to see all of them turn up in Wollongong for the World Championships, yes. which are uh, going to be fantastic. Uh, it's, it's actually less than two months now until the world's come to Wollongong. Absolutely. Well, that's painted uh, the picture very well because that was going to be one of my next questions about the young generation. So it feels like the last decade or so of Tour de France cycling, we've seen um, we've seen groundbreaking moments. So when Chris Froome was winning his multiple Tour de France's, it felt like we were watching a modern legend create his legacy by collecting multiple yellow jerseys. When Egan Bernal won, he was the youngest at the time and then usurped a year later by Tadej Pogacar, who then won two in a row and it was feeling like, oh, okay, this is this is extraordinary what Pogacar is able to do. We're seeing the best young cyclist and, and a world beater at the age of 22, 23 when he was winning those Tour de France's. Uh, they all had they all had a, a heavy heavy level of uh, gravity to those wins. Does Vingegaard's victory have that same level of gravity to what we were seeing in, in the last couple of years? I'd say it's even lifted it a notch because the way they raced this year. I mean, I'd reference the average speed when we first started speaking, and it's over forty two kilometres an hour this year for the three weeks. So that's the fastest ever. Um, and, and I just sort of would like to um, come back to that point, and that is because of the way that it was raced. It's not... Um, we shouldn't be suspicious based on the average speed alone. We're usually in the Tour de France, there's a relatively tranquil beginning to the stage. Not all of the times, but often. Mm-hmm. Whereas this year, it was... You know, as soon as the flag dropped from the lead car, it was, it was game on every single day, and they raced so frantically all of the time, which is why the, the average is sort of elevated this year. 
Um, for Vingegaard to beat Pogacar, I still think it's a remarkable achievement because, in my estimation, I think Pogacar's the most complete rider I've ever seen. Um, but whenever he attacked, and he did many times after he, he lost, he had his little crisis um, in, in the Alps and lost the time to Vingegaard, he tried everything he could to usurp the, 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 the Dane, but um, uh, his attacks were brutal and forceful enough to get rid of every other rider except the Vingegaard, who seemed to be able to respond while barely even breathing. It was, yeah, I... I was very impressed with both of those two. But even though Pogacar was second, I would put him up as the better of the two all-round bike riders, if that makes sense. I can justify it. Rob Arnold with us here on SEN. He's from Ride Media. He's uh, one of Australia's uh, most seasoned Tour de France and cycling uh, journalists. How affected was Tadej Pogacar uh, by the absence of his teammates who were dropping by fl- like flies over the three weeks. I think he was down to four teammates maybe by the end of the tour. How, how much would that have affected his chances? Hugely, enormously. I mean, even for me, I mean, not being flippant, but just having the, the good morale that George Brennett brings to the team. Um, he's a, a Kiwi bike rider who's Team UAE Emirates, uh, which is probably Charles' team. They recruited him at the end of last year. Uh, George had to go home. He was one of many COVID casualties. And uh, without his presence, there was not only the lack of firepower when it came to responding to the, to the let's say, the taunts that came from Yumbo Visma, but also um, then it just, uh, I guess, with every fallen teammate and a new AE ended up rolling into Paris with only four out of eight. Um, it just meant that there was a, a blow to the morale because um, it also... Uh, would have been like um, a, uh, a, 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 a temptation too good to resist where, for Yumbo Visma when they saw that it was a weakened um, uh, team around Pogacar. They knew that they could hit him with tactics that they ended up succeeding with. Whereas had he had all of his teammates, uh, then I think that um, it would have been a, a much closer battle. Uh, Rafael Marker, for example, he... Uh, uh, broke a chain and slapped his leg on the top of his uh, bike at the end of the stage after doing an incredible turn of pace, setting up Pogacar for the finish. And he had to go home because of that injury. So um, up until that point, the, the Polish uh, domestique, or super domestique, was, who's won the King of the Mountains crown at the Tour twice, he was um, the, the right-hand man for Pogacar. And when he's not there... Then he's isolated and it just really had to go down to an individual against the team. And even though Yumbo Visma also lost a couple of riders, they had a more complete uh, uh, roster all the way through to Paris. Rob, to finish off, let's have a quick chat about the Aussies and uh, and what we saw from some of our Australians. It wasn't as... uh... A profitable Tour de France as we've had in the last couple of years with the likes of Ben O'Connor reaching the and Richie Port the year before reaching uh, the podium or near the podium. Um, but we still had uh, Michael Matthews finish top 10 in the green jersey. We had uh, young Michael Storer finish sixth overall for the young classification, the white jersey, and uh, Dylan Gronewegen as well, one of the new signings this year to Team Bike Exchange. Jaco was up there and around the mark for the uh, for the sprint classification too. So from an Aussie perspective individually and for the uh, Bike Exchange Jaco Australian team, uh, what would what would Australians be walking away feeling uh, like how their um, their representatives performed at this year's tour? 
It's a question, again, I could go really long on the answer to this one because Australian cycling has got so much going for it at the moment. And I, uh, I published the official Twitter France guide and I put two Aussies on the cover with, alongside the Tadej Pogacar, and that was Jack Haig and Ben O'Connor. Jack Haig finished third in the Vuelta, which I've talked about before, the Spanish Grand Tour, mm-hmm. uh, last year. And Ben O'Connor was fourth in the Tour de France and won a stage last year. So, And that was his debut in the race. So by... Um, just on those facts alone, I believe that they were genuine GC contenders. How they would have fared in what became the crossfire between Zingegaard and Pogacar, I'm uncertain. I don't think they'd be quite at that level, but I think that the podium was certainly within reach for both of them, given that Garen Thomas finished third overall and he was over eight minutes behind uh, Zingegaard on, on the overall rankings. Um, I think that it was a great shame that both of those two, Jack Haig and Ben O'Connor, suffered misfortune in the first week and they were, they were gone more or less before the real race began. That was a huge upset because when uh, there's an Australian in contention for GC, the general classification, the yellow jersey, um, then it's much more exciting. It uh, becomes a race that, uh, that lures in Aussie fans and I think it's, it makes it more captivating for it to be a little bit parochial. I like cycling no matter who's racing in it, but I think it's much more fun to cheer on the Aussies. So missing those two, it's a great shame. Mm. But then we can move forward and then, uh, and, and then look to, uh, to highlight moments, which was Simon Clark's brilliant win in stage six when he, he, he was basically done and dusted. He was kaput finished. He'd worked really hard to be in a, in a long breakaway that day over a rough uh, Parley road sort of made famous by a race called Parley Roubaix, a one-day classic in April. Um, it's cobbled stones. It's not Simon Clark's preferred terrain. Simon Clark has, uh, is more of a, a mountain climber than a, than a cobbled specialist, but he rode the race of his life that day. He's been the king of the mountains in the Vuelta in the past, back in 2012. Ten years later, he's stage winner of the Tour on his own. In 2013, he was part of the what was Orica Green Edge at the time, and they won the team time trial in Nice. So he has won a stage before... But to see him cross the line uh, in Arenberg as winner of stage six, six gave me goosebumps. And even now, talking about it weeks after the fact, uh, it's a highlight of the sporting year for me. Um, bravo to Simon. And then um, I really have, I could go very, very long with my answer for Michael Matthews and his win at Mond in stage 14 from memory. But um, it was a display of class like I expected. I wrote a column after his victory saying that um, my family asks whenever there's a big bike race on who's going to win, and I always say Michael Matthews. Whether it's Milan San Remo or a stage of the Tour de France or some other big bike race, I, I nominate him as a favourite because his qualities are such that he's always in the mix. What he did uh, in Mond uh, to win stage 14 was just outstanding. He'd been in the break. He'd forced the move with about 50 kilometres or more to go. He found himself on his own. He got uh, the, the rest of the breakaway caught up with him. He got attacked on this brutally steep last climb uh, leading to the finish line. And then it looked like he'd conceded, like he'd given up, like he'd run out of puff, like he just couldn't respond. And then he just came with a second wind, which was just blew my mind. And I, like I say, I expect big things from Michael and when he delivers, it's just wonderful. And what he did to win that stage, I think, would make uh, Australians very proud of the Tour de France uh, performance. 
um, and late night viewing uh, reward with their Rob, it's always a pleasure having a chat to you uh, when we talked cycling, and uh, I'm hoping we'll have a chat to you again later on in the year for the Welter. But uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight to recap the Tour de France, and uh, I guess you can sleep normally now with the uh, the late night cycling over for at least a little while. Thank you so much. To Etienne and to you, Jordan, thanks very much for giving uh, a little bit of uh, uh, coverage for cycling. It's great to put Mark Ford in the, high, in, the, in the spotlight, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. A pleasure as always. Uh, Rob Arnold from Ride Media with us here on SEN. You're listening to The Sporting Capital with Sam Hargraves on SEN. Jordan Canellis with you on the Sporting Capital tonight. Thank you again to Rob Arnold for joining us from Ride Media to recap the Tour de France in depth. What a great tour it was. Uh, so I'm filling in for Sam Hargraves, but Sam Hargraves is actually going to be in in the next hour. We've got Off the Tee coming up. After this, with Sam and Nico Hearn to cover off on the week of golf. Coming up after that, we'll have future stars with uh, Liam Pickering. So I'll be back with uh, Liam Pickering and uh, James Pitcher, both uh, player agents for Bravo, to chat about uh, the future stars, literally future stars in the draft coming up later this year. We'll have a Sandringham Dragons twist uh, to it tonight. So we'll chat a bit about Will Ashcroft and we'll talk to Mark Wheeler from the Sandy Dragons about their draft prospects. And without bias as well, our uh, weekly bowls program. And they've got a big week ahead with the Com game starting in a couple of days and the bowls program beginning on Friday. So a big uh, hour coming up after 9pm. That's it for me for now. Sam Hargraves will be with you on the other side of this with Nico Hearn for Off the Tee. All thanks to Betfair. You can lay bet AFL markets at Betfair. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. See ya. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.